The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. Well, seven years uh, in the making, the Chilcot report uh, reached the public at 11 o'clock this morning. Now, um, I was talking to Roy Greenslade, professor of journalism at City University, and of course, media commentator for The Guardian. Uh, and I, I said, Roy, you've got to come back and explain it all to me. I'm delighted that he's agreed to do that. Uh, professor Greenslade, welcome to the program. Um, hello, George. Um, yes. Uh I think we said yesterday, or you asked me, do you, do you think this is going to be a whitewash? I have to say there's no sense of whitewash about this report. Suggestion it's the most devastating report on a prime minister ever. Well, I would have thought so. Um, it, it, it basically accuses the prime minister of taking us to war. Uh, on a false premise, but the most important thing, we knew that, um, but I think the most important thing is that exchange of letters between Blair and Bush eight months before we went to war in July 2002. We went to war, if you recall, in March 2003. In that July note to George Bush, George W. Bush, Blair said, um, I will be with you whatever. It's the use of the word whatever which has caught the imagination of all commentators today. It suggested that come what may, he would stand full square with George Bush, who was known to be eager to go to war. And although the Chilcot report doesn't use the word uh, or doesn't use the phrase uh, that he committed us to war, um, we all take it that that phrase meant that he was committing himself and he did that without informing the cabinet. He did that without informing, indeed, anyone um, that we know about. Uh, and so he was committed to the idea of supporting the United States in the invasion of Iraq. The, the other criticism Chilcott makes of Blair, which interestingly at the time, uh, many people saw that what would happen after Iraq it would be that he would be uh, deified as a martyr in some way. But we would have we would have made enemies that would would hurt us for for decades to come. Now Chilcot says he totally underestimated that he did, and that was a massive failure. Yes, um, he made no it took no account of really what the post-war situation would be. Um, as far as he was concerned, and I think he's made this very clear himself, he spoke, by the way, for two hours today himself, uh, answering questions after making a lengthy statement, a statement of sorrow, but not one of apology, um, in, in which he has more or less agreed that uh, he went unknowing if, of what would happen afterwards. Uh, he thought tipping out Saddam Hussein would be good enough. It was rightly, he saw that Saddam Hussein, uh, who was guilty of persecuting the Shia people in the south, uh, it was well known that he was guilty of persecuting the Kurds in the north, yeah. um, and that that would simply do the job. And there was no sense of what, what the reconstruction would involve, okay. and it was just thought that if you get rid of the dictator, that's good enough, and you will have seen that the same was true in Libya, that it's all very well getting rid of a dictator, but what comes afterwards is what really needs the attention. Now, finally, Roy, there were two key issues, really, which Chilcot, Chilcot essentially says, whilst not illegal, the legal premise used to go to war was unsatisfactory, which I think is a polite way of saying it was illegal. And then also, the intelligence community appeared to be fearfully at fault for not actually saying to Blair, we don't know whether he would have paid any attention, but saying to Blair, look, this might not be a hundred percent kosher this info yeah okay so uh i think let's take the intelligence first uh the intelligence was wanting um and i think that the intelligence chiefs 
um, allowed Blair to use their intelligence uh, for political ends and didn't question, didn't push him hard enough by saying that much of this, in, much of this intelligence is uh, a pretty dodgy uh, uh, provenance and we can't really stand across it. Um, and yet uh, he was so incredibly clean to go to war that he exaggerated it. I think that was the problem. Now, when you turn to the legality, um, I think it's quite clear you're right. This is a euphemism, to use the word unsatisfactory. What actually happened was that Lord Goldsmith, the Attorney General, gave advice throughout 2002, saying that a UN resolution would be absolutely necessary to justify legally going to war. But suddenly... Uh, in February 2003, just the month before we went to war, Lord Goldsmith changed his mind. But we'd still not, of course, got that second UN resolution. So it was highly unsatisfactory. And the other thing, the most important thing, and this is about the subversion of cabinet government, Blair, as he said quite, uh, quite openly today, took that decision to go to war alone, and the cabinet were, were kept in the dark about the lack of legal advice. Uh, and, that he, and most importantly, I think the key word here is evolution of um, legal advice, because if you imagine the cabinet had been told in 2002 by Goldsmith, at the moment I can't justify it, they would have said in 2003, what is it that changed your mind? And that, I think, is what Chilcott means by unsatisfactory. There is no clear uh, reasoning by Goldsmith on what changed his mind. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Professor of Journalism at City University London. Media commentator, of course, for The Guardian, Roy Greenslade. Now, Colonel Tim Collins was commanding officer of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment during the Iraq War. He joins me now. Colonel Collins, welcome to the programme. Good to speak to George. Now, Tim, um, soldiers accept that they might get uh, killed, wounded, or, or harmed in somewhere when they go to war. Um, how do you feel now um, for men, no doubt, that you served with, who would have died or been or wounded, for the families of those who died or wounded, for a war that is was marginally legal and maybe a decision on on bad information how do you feel now well i think that the um the great extent on the other hand uh, removing saddam hussein was a a good thing to do and and going many times to iraq and talking to people who lived under him i think that um notwithstanding the uh, antics of um the the blair cabinet um removing saddam was the right thing to do what what was a pity and what has been recognized in the chilcott report is that the planning for the aftermath was woeful and 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 not only that it was compounded by the fact that um paul bremer and with the connivance of the british disbanded the iraqi army now prior to that and certainly from about 1999 the clear message we'd been sending both the uk and the us to the iraqi army and particularly its leadership was remove saddam but if you don't we will and when we do we're going to rely on you to help us rebuild the country and hold the peace and that was their expectation and they were astonished when we disbanded the army and uh, they didn't stay astonished long because very shortly after that they then connived in um established the insurgency that went on to take many many lives and is still going on to this day you mentioned a name there, in fact, that had slipped my mind, and of course it slipped everybody's mind because it isn't mentioned in this two and a half million words that Chilcott's come up with. Bremer, Paul Bremer, who who was sort of the 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 gauleiter of of Iraq from the U.S., made some appalling decisions, did he not? He did um, the interim um, administration, but you know, surprisingly, in his memoirs, etc., he denies doing that, though. So, there's another thing to be looked at, but it is the sheer incompetence of many of the so-called experts who arrived in Iraq and set themselves up as experts. Some of them were better than others. Um, for instance, the um, province of Anbar, the province of Maisan, when Anbar province, uh, I beg your pardon, Anbar, uh, Anbar Alamara is the capital. The, the Royal Irish liberated that, and Maisan province is a, a, a province bordering Iran. The chap who ended up uh, being the governor of that province, uh, Rory Stewart, 
happened to be backpacking his way through there, and he went and asked for a job, and they said, yeah, you can be the governor. Now, you know, he turned up and asked for a job, and that's what he was given. That gives you an idea of the depth of ad hocery, if there's such a word that was going on. This is with people's lives at stake. And what's more, they disbanded the police force in Basra. They disbanded the police force, certainly in Alamara. And then they, they allowed um, basically paramilitaries to form their own police force. And looking back on it, the one thing you couldn't dispute was that the serious crime unit that was set up in Basra did most of the serious crime in southern Iraq. Now, uh, soldiers, of course, uh, from the first day they sign on and join up, obeying orders is part of the deal. But it doesn't, um, it doesn't if, if, um, in any way harm your ability uh, and your intelligence. And, and as you've been showing in the last few minutes, to look carefully at something. It must have been extraordinarily difficult, nevertheless, for, for British troops um, who were there who who put their lives on the line, and many of them lost their lives, to then see sort of this sort of palaver going on? Well, of course, it happened in stages. When we first arrived there, um, that um, oxymoron uh, military intelligence had told us that um, we would ha- be facing an Iraqi battalion. But by counting the prisoners that the Royal Irish captured um, within hours of crossing the border, we'd captured most of a, a, a brigade, which is three battalions, um, but at that stage, it was all very good humoured. I would walk around the, the town of Al Medina or Alamara with no, with unarmed, with only a shopping bag and a translator. And if I drank every one of the cups of tea I was offered, I would have died of caffeine poisoning. There was a great deal of goodwill going, and that carried on right up until we disbanded the army. Then they turned on us like a tiger. Now, the thing was, they were telling us constantly throughout that, this is what's got to happen. I'd surrounded myself with Iraqi advisors. They told us, exactly, you know, I said them we were sitting on the second largest oil reserve in the world with gas oil separation plants. And I said to the Iraqis, I don't know anything about running these. And they said, we do, and we'll help you run it all. They helped me do everything. And I can't understand why that goodwill didn't continue, because when we'd left, we were replaced with people who self-styled experts that started a war that's still going strong today. Uh, yeah, my guest is Colonel Tim Collins, former commanding officer of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment during the Iraqi War. Tim, um, this did then precisely what many other people assumed might happen and which Blair ignored. This was really what gave think, play, um, organizations like Al-Qaeda the impetus, wasn't it? Well, Al-Qaeda, it, it's funny you say that. Um, the, um, after the, um, I'd left the army in 2004, and 2007, I started a company called New Century. We went to Anbar on behalf of the American government to set up and run um, the police special branch there. And most of my... The special branch mentors were uh, either RUC or and Garda Shikana. And what the, uh, the, the, the mentors found there was that Al-Qaeda was, uh, were, were like farmed animals in Anbar province and across Iraq. They did exist. They had their command structure. But the people who were calling the shots and controlling them, uh, unknown behind the scenes, even to the Al-Qaeda guys, that became very clear, was the Ba'ath Party. And we had, um, for instance, the, the police... And uh, we quickly discovered the police in Fallujah, whilst they had a rank structure with a, a, a colonel in charge and then lieutenant colonels as deputies, actually had a shadow um, rank structure based on the Ba'ath Party, where one of the lieutenant colonels was more senior than the colonel. Um, so the Ba'ath Party never went away, and they continued to run al-Qaeda. And al-Qaeda now has faded into nothing, and um, a lot of the al-Qaeda fighters have become the Islamic State of Iraq and Sham, or ISIS. Um, but, but the people still behind that are people like Ibrahim Isa al-Duri from the Ba'ath Party, and they're still calling the shots, and they're still behind the scenes. They haven't gone away, you know. Well, that's precisely the point. It, it, this was the start, though. I mean, I various other adventures and failures of, of, of politics and so on, but this was the start of the slippery slope into uh, what also has millions of people attempting uh, to cross the Mediterranean in leaky boats or uh, massacres in, in Belgium or France or whatever. But this was the beginning, was it It not? was. Well, it was, and it was a historic. Uh, when we first 
um, liberated the town of Alamar. It was a mixed city with a large Christian community, and the people who ran the gold souk were, to a man, Jewish. Um, and there was, but it was a predominantly Shia city. Today, Alamar is 100% Shia. The Christians have gone. The Jews have gone. So have the Sunnis from that region. It's been completely ethnically cleansed. You can look at the Assyrian people who are the Christians who spoke Aramaic, the language of Christ. We know the Assyrians uh, as a people where uh, we find evidence from the fourth millennium BC. They were certainly a recognized distinct people with an empire by the 24th century BC. But what we can say with certainty, because we're not really sure of those dates, what we can say with certainty precisely is the end of that people happened on the 20th of March 2003 in the 21st century. Um, th that's a shocking thing. And, and these are the consequences of this action, which have been overlooked. Ancient civilizations have been wiped out. The Yazidis, the Manadeans, the Jewish community in Iraq has gone. And that's a direct result of this ill-thought-out military adventure. Thank you so much for joining me, Colonel Tim Collins, commanding officer, formerly, of course, of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Irish Regiment during that Iraqi uh, war and um, his extraordinary inside knowledge, of course, as a, a soldier and later on uh, back there running the police, uh, quite extraordinary. Roy Greenslade, never a fan of Tony Blair's, of course, but what we are seeing... In this Chilcot report um, is replicated, and it is the tragedy of politics, and and the politics for many people that began with a name uh, to help people eventually becomes an end in itself, and the people who suffer and die are just ordinary God-fearing, believing in whatever God they might, ordinary people who pay the price. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. Well, uh, former president of the United States of America, George W. Bush, turns 70 today. Have a listen to how he looked back on his uh, time in the White House. It clearly putting a mission accomplished on an aircraft carrier was a mistake. It sent the wrong message. We were trying to say something differently, but nevertheless it conveyed a different message. Obviously some of my rhetoric has been a mistake. I thought long and hard about Katrina. You know, could I have done something differently? There have been disappointments. Abu Ghraib obviously was a huge disappointment during the presidency. Not having weapons of mass destruction was a significant disappointment. I don't know if you want to call those mistakes or not, but they were things didn't go according to plan. Let's put it that way. And, uh, anyway, I think uh, historians will look back and they'll be able to have a better look at mistakes after some time has passed. I, I, I along Jake's question, there is no such thing as short-term history. Well, as George W. Bush said, historians would look back and assess his presidency, who, who better, therefore, than formerly, of course, historian at University College Dublin, now Eugene Meyer, professor of history at Bard College in New York. And if you're interested in more, you'll find my guest's podcast, The American Interest Magazine. You might like to download it. It is, of course, Professor Richard Aldous. Uh, Richard, welcome to the program. Be back, George. Yeah, um, the accent hasn't changed anyway. You've survived that in upstate New York. There's no American accent quite yet. <laughs> now, what about this man? Uh, particularly, we're talking on the day when the pr Prime Minister of Britain, during his term of office, uh, is getting a roasting on the Chilcot report. What's the reflection on George W. in your opinion? Well, just as Tony Blair's reputation will be very much dominated by the war in Iraq, uh, so too George Bush. Um, I think that, I mean, one of the first things that we have to say about George Bush is that there were a number of disasters that occurred during his presidency, which to some degree weren't his fault, whether it's 9-11, uh, the financial collapse, Hurricane Katrina. 
But quite clearly, the war in Iraq um, and the massive deficit which he ran up, those were decisions which he made and you know, which history, uh, I think, will probably judge him quite harshly about. The one thing that you do have to say about Iraq and his supporters, say, is, of course, that he instituted the surge in 2007, uh, which improved what was going on in Iraq, and his supporters have blamed President Obama for drawing down forces and, in effect, they say, uh, make, uh, making Iraq worse than it actually needed to be. All right. Um, but he doesn't appear to be, and I wonder what your assessment is, and, and uh, he doesn't appear to be clever, though. He doesn't appear to be an intellectual president in the way uh, some of his predecessors were. Not all of them, but some of them. He, he, and, and, and was influenced hugely by Cheney, it seems to me. Um, I think, I mean, certainly nobody would call him an intellectual, but then very often intellectuals don't actually make the best presidents. Um, I mean, we can think, for example, uh, of Woodrow Wilson, uh, who got himself uh, tied into a terrible mess at the, uh, at the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles. In contrast to Ronald Reagan, who helped bring the Cold War to an end, uh, but similarly was no intellectual. But I think that you're right, that a lot of the intellectual heavy lifting uh, was done by his vice president, Dick Cheney. And of course, Dick Cheney was a committed neoconservative. And so neoconservatism was really the theme which ran through at least the first six years uh, of uh, the Bush presidency uh, until just towards the end, uh, possibly under the influence of uh, Condoleezza Rice, but also James Baker, uh, that President Bush turned away from that neoconservatism. Economics at the end of the day, as Bill Clinton famously said, you know, economics was the key thing for a president. Um, Reagan, I remember Reagan's economic theories were at one point called voodoo economics. And now people look back at Reagan, well, certainly if they're Republicans, and they think he was the great messiah. You, I never thought that Bush had a grasp of economics. Uh, so where did the American economy go? Albeit there were crashes maybe outside his control. But what did you think about his stewardship of the economy? Well, there are, there are two aspects to that. The, the, first of all, he did run up an absolutely massive budget deficit that when he came into office in uh, January 2001, he'd inherited a budget de- uh, um, surfeit from uh, from President Clinton. Um, by the time he left office, there was a, mu- a massive budget uh, deficit, uh, and that really has hamstrung the United States ever since. But in particular, it hamstrung the United States because, of course, in 2008, uh, we had the massive f- uh, financial collapse. One thing that historians do say, I think, is that uh, President Bush is generally praised for the way in which he handled the financial collapse. So in other words, by the introduction of what was called TARP um, and rescuing the financial system, bailing out the financial system effectively, uh, he meant that the financial system and the banks didn't go into complete meltdown. And I think that most analysts uh, recognize that uh, that was a very important thing to do and that he handled that, if not perfectly. Many people are very angry about the fact that Wall Street and the banks were bailed out. But I think that most people recognize that it was something that had to be done and that he did it reasonably well. But the thing for Americans is that the the discussion about Bush or about any president in America is always split 50-50. Democrats think he's rubbish. The Republicans think he's great. He was a classic Republican president in the sense he looked after wealthy people. Uh, I, I think that that's true up to a large, uh, large degree. I mean, clearly he was a Republican. He remained uh, pretty, um, pretty popular with Republicans. For example, if you look at his approval ratings now, he's at around 57 percent, which is more than uh, either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Uh, the one caveat that I would add to that is that two things that he's been praised for. One is uh, the amount of uh, aid that he gave to Africa and that this was a serious issue for him trying to deal with poverty in Africa. Uh, and, and also, many of his policies were more liberal than we would imagine from the kind of neoconservative foreign policy. So, for example, uh, No Child Left Behind, which was a, an educational policy which tried to help the, the very poorest in society. 
and also his attempts at immigration reform, uh, which uh, won some kind of bipartisan support and were generally seen as quite liberal. Just on the presidency in general, as we approach the end of one and the start of a new one in November, two-time president, it's still an achievement to get re-elected. I mean, we shouldn't dismiss that. It, it certainly is, and particular, particularly because uh, President Bush was re-elected for the second time right in the middle of the uh, controversy over the, the war in Iraq. Um, so, uh, And you only have to look at the example of his father, um, uh, President H.W. Bush, who was a very fine president, uh, was very successful, uh, not only in the way that he won the first Gulf War, but now when we look back, his economic stewardship, uh, it seemed to be very, very frugal and far-sighted, uh, and yet, you know, in nineteen in nineteen ninety two, he lost uh, to Bill Clinton and was only a one term president. Oh. The one, uh, the one thing that maybe is some comfort is that most historians look back and say, actually, for most of presidents, they achieve what they want to achieve in their first term. It's quite rare presidents like President Reagan, for example, who actually make their big achievement in the second term. All right. Well, um, I'm sure, Richard, you and I both say happy birthday, George, on today, the 6th of July. Yeah. We certainly do, and we all say we're all Welsh today, too. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. That was Professor Richard Aldous, um, Eugene Meyer Professor of History at Bard College, New York, and a regular Right Hook listeners will remember, of course, when Richard was at UCD. He was a regular fill-in on the Right Hook when I went off on my many holidays. You could check out Richard's podcast, The American Interest Magazine. You might like to download it. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George. Barry White is a retired judge. Of course, before being a judge, he was a barrister. Now, one would have thought when he retired as a judge, he could just go back to being uh, a barrister just like broadcasters might go back to being bakers or whatever. Not so, it would appear, and the good judge has taken an action in the High Court to explain it all to me. I'm joined by John O'Keefe, criminologist and criminal law lecturer. On the face of it, John O'Keefe, and welcome to the programme, Thank you. seems a bit unfair. Yeah, it is unfair, I think. Um, here's a man who has operated as a barrister for so many years, was a High Court judge for 12 years, and then said he'd like to go back, not on a whim, but because he says he needs to go back and earn a bit of money at the bar of what he does. But the bar councillor is saying, no, you can't go back. We're not allowing that uh, because there's a ruling 85 years ago, so nice and current, um, that says you can't do that, that you can't go back. The only place he's allowed practice is in a higher court to the one he was in. So the Supreme Court and the chances of getting your daily bread in the Supreme Court is obviously very small. Right. Not wishing to dwell on on Barry White's uh, former judge Barry White on his personal financial affairs, many people listening might think, you know, it's surprising that a retired judge needs to work. Well, maybe so, and I'm not, you know, privy no more than anybody else to his financial dealings. He has said he's got four children in full time education, so I think, notwithstanding his age, they're obviously relatively young. Presumably, he's paying for them. Expensive exercise. Uh, yeah, if you're paying for the education, yeah. And people will say, well, he's made his choice. Well, maybe he has made his choice. But he also made a choice to be a barrister, which is an independent practitioner. And you would expect he could practice until the day he drops. And I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. Well, isn't that the point? That we live in a very different era. Uh, in my father's time, when you retired at 65, you might, you might have less than a decade left. And you certainly weren't going to work. Yeah. Uh, now people are working way beyond that. So isn't there an ageist component to this? I think there is. Now, there hasn't been claimed in it, but I also think there is that. Now, of course, judges can work until they're quite relatively elderly in the early 70s, 75 um, sometimes. But at the same time, I think you're right. I think this issue about being able to work a bit later in life, it's all changed. Nobody retires in the way they did anymore because nobody's got a job for life. Now, you might say, well, he was a civil servant for 12 years. He had a job for life. I mean, there's people listening saying he should be happy with his 85 grand a year pension. And perhaps he should be. And how old is Judge Barry? I understand he's 71. 
No, there are people down at the bar practicing at the bar in their 80s and understand there's one chap in his 90s who comes in the odd time. So, you know, these people are independent. They're self-employed. They're not solicitors. They're entitled to do that. All right. Um, 85 years ago, they had a rule that said mm. a judge couldn't go back to the bar. Well, the bar was, yeah. what, was the, what was the underlying reason for Well, that? of course, uh, you know, a, a poor really, a thing called public policy considerations. You'll find when judges are a little short of something to say, they might say, look, public policy dictates it. So what they were probably implying was if he went back in, for instance, into the circuit court and he's standing up in the circuit court and there's a guy just out 21 years of age, wet behind the ears, the judge of the circuit court is going to be salivating looking looking at this ex-high court judge and he's going to have an unfair advantage. That seemed to be the kind of implication. But of course, that's nonsense. There are senior counsel of 40 years standing who would routinely, maybe not routinely, but will often stand beside somebody who's a year or two out. There are people who go to dinner parties with each other, you know, who are friendly, who are unfriendly. So there's so many variables, you can't allow for that. Look, the solicitors have got it right. I never thought I'd uttered that sentence. But they do in this regard, insofar as if you be- if you're a solicitor and you become a high court judge, you can go back into practice as a solicitor if you so choose. And it is a right, an unenumerated right in our constitution that you have a right to work. And there has to be good reasons why you're not allowed that right. Now, of course, um, Barry White, the former judge, has taken action in the court in which he previously practiced. So uh, this is taken place in front of one of his mates, one would say. One of his mates is sitting on the bench, mm. right? Yeah, of course. Well, that I don't makes know it. To... No, but it makes it difficult for the sitting judge. I know, but it? I mean, there are cases every single day that are difficult for the sitting judge. Okay. This is Ireland, unless he goes to Salon. Do you know what I mean? It's just not going to happen. Inevitably, there are connections between the the two and a half thousand barristers down the law library, the few hundred judges. They all know each other. They're all interconnected in some way. And every day there is a potential conflict. But what we assume barristers and judges do is they put on their independent hat, their equitable hat, and they say, no, today I am mainly being neutral. And we hope they do that. So you can't legislate for that. they no judicial system if that were the case. Um, so he's taking the action. So he's taking the action against the bar council, the yeah, government. No, the Who's bar he? council the who bar regulates council. the, the, the uh, barristers. And what are the bar council doing? They mustn't be very busy. You know, they're defending an action. Just let them practice. Now, the bar council would consist of, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen yeah. senior barristers correct. who, who kind of run the show. Yeah, correct. And look, we all know about the bar. It's a an interesting institution. And for those who haven't aren't familiar with it or have been in it, it's certainly a peculiar place. In order to become a barrister, you must dine so many times a year. You must sit beside other barristers and judges. You must wear funny clothes and primarily you must earn no money for the first 10 years which they all seem to do pretty well but they have their rules and regulate but they're getting carried away with this it seems to me they have this rule in place which just doesn't make any sense yeah but you know you're kind of a philistine if you don't mind me saying so many thanks yeah yeah, but you kind of dis you dismiss the dining or you no no actually no no sorry maybe maybe I came across incorrectly there I think that's all great crack great fun collegiality yeah absolutely no I'm not saying you can't dismiss no, 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 I'm not. I'm not dismissed. And actually, I quite like that because I'm a galloping snob, as you know. So I quite like all that club ability and the fact yeah. that, yeah, no, it's I think there's nothing wrong with It's a golf club, really. Yeah, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that provided it doesn't bleed into other areas and, and affect the administration of justice. What I'm saying is occasionally they have some arcane rules such as this one from a right. case of 85 years ago. They really need to just sit okay. up and have a think about and it. And we're cheering for Barry White, are we? I think we are cheering for Barry White. One of, can I just say one of the f- finer judges in the High Court, well-respected, was in the Joe Arrival. Riley trial, Brian Carney trial, Eamon Linlis and all the rest of it. So he's been high profile. Okay, well, I have to say uh, I'm older than Barry White and I would be appalled if somebody said to me, George, you can't work anymore. Hmm. Uh, And I I have to say I think it's wrong and I'm cheering for Barry White. I'm sure the good judge sitting on the bench will take my views into account, but you never know. He could be a listener. 53106 for your thoughts on the poor judge. My thanks to my guest, John O'Keefe, Criminologist and lecturer in criminal law. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by public affairs consultant and columnist at the Irish Examiner, Gerard Howland. Gerard, welcome to the studio. Thanks, George. 
I, I just had to have you on, I must say. When I read the examiner this morning, I said, I have to talk to this guy. Um, you might explain what you said this morning, because I thought it was exceedingly powerful. Well, thanks. I suppose part of the impetus was you're looking at a, writing a column once a week is sort of a blank sheet of paper and you say, I can't write another article about Brexit. Nobody wants to read another article about Brexit. But there's something peculiar going on. And Brexit is just one bit of it. I thought the whole debate and carry on here about the fatal fetal abnormalities bill and Voting for a bill that's probably not constitutional is is, is another bit of it. Uh, the whole debate about water charges is another bit of it. Donald Trump. And it's all this thing about how rhetoric and words have become so powerful and words have overtaken facts. Right. But great orators have been very important in in politics, haven't they? Yes, and the purpose of oratory, you go back to classical Greece and Rome, oratory, a rhetoric it was called, was something that any educated person must learn. Why? Because the discussion with and use of words led you to greater, deeper understanding. But we seem to be in a space now, whether it's Brexit, in my opinion, water, I'm a contrarian on that, uh, fatal fetal abnormalities, that words are used not to reach understanding, but to establish new facts that actually have no reality whatsoever. I, I said before you came in, I asked, was was politics now uh, a victory for style over substance? Is that what you mean? It's a style. I wouldn't call it style. I have a certain notion of what style might be. I don't see a lot of style in, in some of this. But it's certainly, I suppose, it is a victory for harumping. It's a victory for windbagging. It is a victory for demagoguery, especially. But demagoguery, not as we sort of classically think about it, of the man on the back of a truck, uh, sort of windbagging, but demagoguery in a new way, filtered in tiny, tiny morsels via social media. And, um, well, there's another way is that what the politicians have now, because they're limited to 140 characters Mm. in Twitter or whatever it happens to be, they have now mastered the soundbite, haven't they? They've, they've actually mastered that better than any of their predecessors. Absolutely. And you can go back to the famous Kennedy-Nixon debates on television. Anyone who listened on the radio uh, felt Nixon won. Kennedy on television was more presentable. And it's a continuation on that in which the medium is shaping the message and it's shaping how people use and act within it. And now you have a new generation. Uh, and I suppose we can't exclude ourselves, George, because, you know, you as a major commentator, come uh, broadcaster, me, I was a special advisor in politics. Now I'm writing a column. And then you look at these people who are newspaper columnists and politicians at the same time, like Shane Ross and, and Boris Johnson. Like, how did this all come about? That You know, it's not just the lines between reportage and comment are blurred they've effectively almost disappeared, but that the lines between different what were separate professions or trades are are now uh, almost indistinguishable as well. But in various aspects of life, um, you you come along and you say, have I got a conflict of interest Mm. here? Like, there's an enormous conflict of interest. We must look at one particular person. I mean, the shape is Shane Ross. There's an enormous conflict of interest, surely. I would think so. I mean, I don't see personally how uh, you can write a column uh, continuously for a newspaper uh, and be a member of a cabinet where matters are discussed confidentially. It's not that I'm accusing him of breaking cabinet confidentiality, but it is that the people sitting around that table are entitled to a sense of expectation that even in a broader sense, their business is not going to be discussed otherwise. Well, there the number of people now increasingly, and, and you were very good on it today, but increasingly people who are finding a complete contradiction by the actions of the Independent Alliance uh, on in relation to what, as you say, may well be an unconstitutional bill and their position in Cabinet. I mean, people find that... Like, I, I don't think that has ever happened before. No. Not in my, the great phrase, not in my lifetime. No, it hasn't. I mean, look, the Oireachtas under the Constitution and the government is intended to try its best sincerely to pass legislation it believes is constitutional. Sometimes it gets it wrong, but it always 
sincerely tries his best. And then there's a break. And the break provided by the Constitution is that the president, entirely separately, completely independently, has his prerogative, if he sees fit, to refer to the Supreme Court. For the first time, I can ever remember, you have politicians saying blatantly, sure, we know it's not constitutional, but won't the president refer it to the Supreme Court? They are disowning their responsibility as a legislature to pass legislation that they sincerely believe have genuinely tried to make to be constitutional. And then that other separate break, which is the president's entirely independent prerogative, is there to protect us, the people, to protect our constitution. But they're rolling it into one to suit their politics. They're making facts out of words, essentially. Well, it, it, that is the real worry when the Attorney General, another constitutional figure, is just to refer to as it's only an opinion. I mean, the Attorney General's opinion is completely different from your opinion or mine. Absolutely. The Attorney General is a constitutional officer and the word shall is used in the Constitution in relation to her functions. Uh, and the, the government... Uh, she sits at the cabinet table as a constitutional officer to provide that advice, which they as cabinet ministers are uniquely privileged to have, to take cognizance on, to exercise their responsibility under the constitution. Not a political responsibility, a constitutional responsibility to provide government, to provide legislation that they believe to be constitutional. But all this has happened on the watch of the current Taoiseach. It has. And, and surely the current T-shirt must be uh, damaged by all this. You, yes, but I, would, I want to step back from that, George, and say to you, is there's a lot of the dead, he's a dead man walking talk going around. What strikes me about Enda Kenny is that while he's a T-shirt walking on the thinnest ice any Taoiseach has ever walked on in the history of the state, he's also a Taoiseach who has rebounded back into government after the worst electoral setback of any ever. So that his achievement in being in government to date outweighs the precariousness, precariousness in which he, he, he is in government. And, and this new politics, by the way, which is being widely derided, also continually brings benefits because it is ensuring that you do not have the arrogant government we had in the past. It is ensuring on a range of issues that there is greater accountability. And yes, I concede, uh, it is a mess today. And on issues like this, where you have three of five members of the Independent Alliance who are ministers, where you one of whom is constitutionally a government minister disregarding the Attorney General's advice, uh, that is a very worrying sign indeed. But the, as a listener says that a government minister, Shane Ross, Minister for Transport, voting against the Attorney General's advice is a direct... A vote of no confidence in her ability, surely, a listener asks. It, yes, and the answer, the technical answer to the question in the unreal world uh, that of, they inhabit. of the cabinet room is that because Enda Kenny's Taoiseach stepped right up to the line but didn't cross it. In other words, the government didn't actually form a position on this so there was no cabinet um, technically, in the most technical sense only. Not in any real sense that you or I would understand which is why you're looking at me like that uh, but formally they did not take that formal position that would have been a step too far. Well, you did mention the word new politics, and I was surprised because you tended to, to speak of it in, in a more positive light. Is this new politics not actually, in fact, worse than the previous one, arrogance or no? Well, we'll only t know for sure when the life of this doll is over. But I do think several months on that it is providing a lot of benefits. I think uh, certainly every government department, every minister is having to account for itself much more thoroughly every day on every policy. And it is messy, of course, be partly because it's just new and people are not quite sure how to do it. Uh, and partly because the system that never had to do it is not equipped to do it. Uh, but if you compare what went before, where policies were rammed through without due examination, I think on the whole, uh, a, a more empowered doll, which will emerge after this one in the 33rd doll, um, will the, the benefits of then will be seen as being lasting and, and positive. But 
it's it's an impossible question, but that doesn't mean I need your opinion. Um, we're looking at Spain, we're looking at Portugal, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're uh, looking at us. Uh, we are looking at the idea of an established government. Uh, we're the only ones who've actually succeeded in doing it. I mean, Spaniards have two elections, still can't form a government. Uh, what does that say about people who go into polling booths in 21st century as opposed to the ones who went in 20th century? Well, I, I think the Irish political system is unique with the, the proportional representation in the multi-seat constituency. And it means that a system with a lot of weaknesses has one strength. It is effectively made of rubber in the sense that it can perform almost any contortion that would much more quickly break any of the other political systems around Europe. And you can see that in Britain, uh, where apart from the fact that you have four separate entities in in the United Kingdom where their first-past-the-post system is proving extremely inflexible in dealing with the challenges they have, that that our much more malleable uh, proportional representation system is allowing the political contortions to ensure that government goes on imperfectly but continuously. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Jared Howland, my guest in the studio. Jared, of course, is columnist with the Irish Examiner. And currently a public affairs consultant. Um, George Mark Limerick says the executive has too much power. Quite a few countries don't have a cab- cabinet confidentiality, really. Um, it's just another form of secrecy. I'm not sure about that. The AG is not infallible. Nobody suggests the AG is infallible. Um, uh, the the uh, soundbites posturing but first creating a narrative that you never deviate from even when you're talking war. So what the listener is trying to say, I think that that uh, is kind of chitter-chatter means that you mightn't have gone to war in Iraq if it was happening in the UK. And finally, Mr. Hook, most of the time I think you're a pain in the ass, but I have tipped my hat in your general direction. You mentioned Sky Channel 343 in passing a few days ago. Thank you very much. I've watched so many classic gems. It's scary. All that from a reluctant listener. But maybe if you weren't so reluctant, you might get some more gems from me. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty power. Shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. Joined now by environment expert Frank McDonald. Welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. I trust you had a safe and secure cycle up here. I certainly did, yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> Except one cyclist tried to pass me out, uh, uh, actually did pass me out on the inside uh, on right. the bicycle lane. Isn't that weird? Well, I normally pass out with cyclists. I, I know that, too. Yeah. We, won't, we won't go down that Listen, cul-de-sac. Temple Bar was was one of the great it was the West Bank it was the left bank the left bank <laughs> no, no you're confusing it with the West Wing <laughs> no the West Bank is Palestine isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yes yes exactly sorry the left bank it was supposed to be a kind of fiercely cultural kind of a place well it was I mean it was, and it's, it's actually not. 25 years ago this month believe it or not really uh, Temple Bar Properties the state agency was set up uh, by? by Charlie Hoy um, and his government uh, to develop Temple Bar as what was described at the time as a bustling cultural, residential and small business precinct that will attract visitors in significant numbers. And what was it 25 years ago? Well, it was at that stage, it was quite a, uh, quite a bohemian kind of area. Okay. Um, I mean, you might, you, you might remember it. I mean, not very many people went there um, at the time, but those who did got a great, great enjoyment out of it. It had, you know, a mix of rock band rehearsal studios, alternative clothes shops, you know, shops selling comics and things like that, you know. And uh, you moved in at this point. Well, no, not at that point. Um, It was a few years later uh, when Temple Bar Properties got got the show on the road and started building uh, and converting existing buildings into housing. Um, and they weren't even sure there was going to be a residential market in the city centre, uh, not even in Temple Bar at the time. These and would I, be primarily apartments. Yeah, apartments, of yeah. course. All of them are apartments. I yeah. mean, there isn't a single house in the area apart okay. from uh, the, the Casey House on Fishamble Street. And, um, you know, like 
I said to them at the time, I said, well, look, if you're if you're unsure about whether there's a residential market, you can put me down for one of the apartments in Temple Bar that I'm prepared to put my money where my mouth was, which was all about trying to encourage more and more people to move back into the city centre. Of course. And, and, you know, that has happened. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, the the physical environment that we're now expected to live in uh, leaves a lot to be desired, to put it mildly. Yeah, um, it's not a place to go very often, but the odd time I go there, um, it just seems to be like pubs and and uh, stag parties and hen well, parties. There and isn't really so much of the stag and hen parties. Oh, is there it's not? just basically a whole lot of public drunkenness, uh, guys peeing in doorways, um, publicans abusing the neighbourhood by having external loudspeakers to blast the place with noise, um, rock bands performing as so-called buskers, um, you know, with uh, high-octane amplifiers uh, at up to no, 100 okay, no, decibels no, and so hold on. Now, hold on All of that kind of stuff. We have a city council. Yeah, we do, yeah. but I Which mean, is fact, only the city council, a, a stone's throw away. This is true. But, uh, you know, a lot of the councillors don't seem to know what goes on in Temple Bar, really. Um, they represent suburban areas of the city. Uh, they don't come in, you know, to Temple Bar or, or even anywhere in the city centre um, on, a, say, a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. But that's uh, a bit like saying, sorry, sorry, Frank, that's a bit like saying that Michael Nunn, Minister for Finances from Limerick, yeah. so he only cares about the finances of Limerick. Well, I think he... he a city councillor is a city, city council, councillor. Exactly. And in fact, I was at the last the city council meeting on Monday night because they were discussing the busking bylaws, which, of course, have become, you know, a labyrinthine... Uh, a document with loads and loads of conditions and, you know, um, all sorts of stuff in it about what you can and can't do. Uh, but at the end of the day, what it boils down to is there there is a serious noise environment in the city centre. Uh, it used to be just caused by traffic, but now it's being it's being gratuitously added to uh, by all of these other sources of noise, um, including, you know, revelers in the streets and all the rest of it. You know, you can put up with that to some extent. But, you know, sometimes people would be woken up at five in the morning, you know, by raucous shouting and roaring well, on the street uh, and, okay. and so on. <clears throat> but there are bylaws, I suppose you'd refer to them, about what happens in a street in Dublin. Well, I mean, yeah. among the bylaws that we have, yeah. uh, are, are, it prohibits uh, on-street drinking. And yet, that's, an, on, that's one silo in Dublin City Council, you know, administers that, if you like. And another silo, bureaucratic silo, I mean, in Dublin City Council, uh, grants uh, licences to pubs to for uh, outdoor uh, drinking space. Um, you know, and so you could have maybe 50 or 60 people congregated outside so, the Temple Bar pub or other places in the okay, area. OK, so what you're suggesting to me is there's a bylaw that says you can't drink in the street. Yeah. And then the council grants That's a licence right, to drink in the street. Th- this is true, yeah. Yeah, and they don't seem to know or recognise that there's a there's actually a fundamental con- contradiction between those two things. You can't see that. You can't see that. I mean, for example, in Temple Bar Square, as I noted in the, a piece that I've, I've written on, kind of a verdict on Temple Bar 25 years on for Architecture Ireland, and it's online at the moment. Um, I, you know, I noted that, the, I mean, in the case of the badass in, 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 in Crown Alley, where, you know, that was one of the really um, favourite things in Temple Bar for people in the past. Uh, it was in operation since 1983 and it did pizzas and burgers and all that kind of stuff. It was very popular with kids and younger people especially. And that, a few years ago, was turned into a pub. Now, technically, it has no planning permission to be a a pub or to operate as a pub and that planning permission was denied it both by Dublin City Council and by On Board Planola on appeal and what do you know Dublin City Council facilitates the Badass Cafe by giving them uh, space for 16 tables uh, with chairs on Temple Bar Square where they also have an external loudspeaker blasting out noise um, from a musician that's playing inside on, on amped equipment uh, and so on. So, you know, like, uh, and also don't forget that Dublin City Council is now effectively in control of Temple Bar because it has taken over Temple Bar Cultural but Trust. I, I heard um, on a programme in News Talk, um, and I was only half paying attention, I must confess, but it was obviously some woman from Dublin City Council, right? And she was 
going on about the 80 decibel rule that you couldn't have. Like, it was terrible that there was this noise in the street and that they were... It's a shame I didn't listen more if I'd known you were coming in. Uh, and they were now bringing in the 80 decibel rule because you really couldn't have people yeah, but, making noise. Yeah, but the thing about it is that those kind of rules are just unenforceable. I mean, at the City Council meeting on Monday night, uh, one of the councillors pointed out that there is only one official in all of the 6,000 people who work for Dublin City Council. There's one official whose job it is to monitor... Who's uh, the decibel uh, who, counter. Who's, yeah, and who goes around supposedly uh, ensuring that, that the, the, these heavily amped bus- buskers are actually uh, complying with the, with the noise limits. And of course... This is impossible. You know, like I could go down and with my own decibel counter, which I have, uh, and measure the noise being made on Tevelbar Square right, every evening. How many people are there in Dublin City Council? How many councillors, roughly? There's, a, there's about 60 or something. All right. Now, are you, you, what you're basically saying is there are 60 people who are charged with running the city and they drive on a five iron away from their office. Uh, the, the, a coach and four is being driven through regulations uh, exactly, and they're not yeah. doing anything about it. No, they're it. not doing anything about it. And in fact, when uh, when I first drew attention, uh, the attention of Jim Keoghan, who's the manager of the planning department, and uh, by the way, it's, I think it's a bit unfair to say that the councillors run the city. They don't. They are ultimately responsible. But the people who actually make the day-to-day decisions are the officials. And yeah, when, but uh, the city uh, manager is too the busy city manager. making cycle lanes uh, and banning motor cars uh, that he's not remotely well, interested in. Perhaps, else. but I think, I, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. It but is uh, but, I, but I, I mean, for example, I, I was walking down Dame Street a few years ago uh, with Jim Kilgan, who's the manager of the planning department. And, you know, I pointed out to him that one of the pubs on Dame Street had an external loudspeaker and said that this is a problem. They're polluting the public realm with noise. And uh, he kind of just didn't see the point uh, of it. Yeah. Uh, and we... Well, we, you're probably, and I mean this as nice as possible way, like, you're probably seen as just a kind of a troublemaker. Maybe uh, maybe so, but I mean, what I'm trying to do... No, uh, I'm not diminishing what you're saying. No, no, but but I'm sure that that is true. And, uh, you know, a killjoy and all the rest. What's wrong with a few buskers? What's wrong with pubs having, uh, you know, musical acts and all the rest of it? No, nothing wrong with that. But in other cities in Europe, as you know, I mean, you know, one of our favourite places is Paris. I mean, you would not find situations like that happening in Paris because, I mean, you know, they the pubs contain what's known as entertainment noise and they don't allow it to break out into the street because they know that if they do that, the, the, but, the forces of law and order would be down on them like a ton of bricks. But, you know, you could name some of the great sort of cities, you know, Paris, Vienna, um, Rome, Prague. Like, none of them have a, a, an obscenity like Temple Bar. None of them. And I'm not very often down there because it's not my bag to be drinking all yeah. night in the street. Yeah, but, but but every time I go there, I look at it and I say... Yeah, I know, but I mean, I, wish, I actually wish that, a ho- that all of the members of the city council would actually take the time you know some weekend night to come down to Temple Bar uh, and see what goes on for themselves because after all why do we do it for a bit of crack right yeah. uh, two old fogey troublemakers <laughs> like you and I yeah, why right? don't we do it let's do, yeah. let's do that George you armed with yeah. your decimal yeah, exactly, counter yeah. we'll do, me we'll, we'll armed do that. with my recorder yeah, right that's a date now that's definitely we'll definitely do that uh, I mean as soon as you as soon as you as soon as you like well let no but, but the the other thing is, although there may be 60 councillors, mm. right, there has to be a councillor for that ward, at least oh, one are, yeah. oh, who is elected. So there are five people in the council. Yeah, there are. And oh, you yeah, know yeah, their they, names, they're, they're, Yes, of course. And, and, and the, local, the local councillors, well, people like, uh, you know, for example, Chris Andrews from Sinn Féin and Dermot Lacey from the Labour Party and and others whose names I've I've momentarily forgotten. But in any case, the point about it is the local councillors are well aware that these are really serious issues and that they need to be dealt with. But trying to convince their suburban colleagues that this is a real problem is is actually yeah, but trying a to convince that like but allowing for all that, there is a city manager. There is, yeah. 
Really and and uh, and a phalanx of bureaucrats in 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 Dublin yeah, city no, government. The city manager is terribly interested in exhaust fumes, but he's not remotely yeah, interested. I think that in we, I think that, noise. I, George, there's a new census was taken this year, and I'm sure that the results, when they're published next month, are going. The preliminary results of the census are coming out next month, and they will show that there's been another significant increase in the population of Dublin city centre, which is something that we all should welcome because because it is something that really needed to happen because this place was being abandoned and now it's no longer abandoned. But what is happening at the moment is that the city centre is effectively badly run by the people who are in charge of it and and that we yeah. really need them to face up yeah. to to try and make the place more civilised. That's all we want. All I, right, we okay. have no objection yeah. to pubs playing music Actually, inside but they need to contain the noise. I'm just thinking about this for a minute. I, yes. I've changed my mind. What? Right? Well, I think Temple Bar is a great place because we now have all the gougers down Temple Bar right? oh, uh, and they're not in leafy fox <laughs> right? so, so Well, you can console yourself <laughs> with that thought, George. There's yeah. no doubt about I that. I can sleep the you sleep know, the just, yeah. you yes, know, yes. Well, I mean, undisturbed by with some, of, some of the councillors who are less sympathetic to what's uh, to to yeah. our, our points of view. I is you you'd have you you'd be half motivated to go to set up to rent a rock band and go out <laughs> and play outside their houses and see what they think of it. You know. All right. Okay. Well, the same fellow who was city, who is manager in Dublin City Council, I had the purpose of so I soldiered under him and Don Leary. You know. Oh, Oh, so yes. Look what he did there. Yeah. Well, All right. Although my wife is a big fan of the library, same yeah. as you. Uh, no, that's, I'm glad to hear that, George. She, <laughs> that shows she's got a great aesthetic sensibilities. All right. So if you're in Temple Bar some Saturday night in the next couple of weeks and you see two old fogies armed with decimal, uh, decimal counters, it'll be Frank MacDonald and George Hook.